Let's chant the refuges and the precepts together. Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Budang Saranangochami Damang Saranangochami Sangang Saranangochami Dutiampi Budang Saranangochami Dutiampi Damang Saranangochami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangochami Tatiampi Budang Saranangochami Tatiampi Damang Saranangochami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangochami Precepts Panati Pata We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Adina Dana We Ramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Abramacharya Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Maria, Maja, Pamaratana, Vairamani, Sikapadam, Samadhyami. The eight preceptors. Vikala Bhojana, Vairamani, Sikapadam, Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Vairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami 
everyone. Idam me silang. Maga pala nyana sa. Pachayo. Hotu. last line of the chant says that may the observance of this sila be the cause for the realization of Nibbana. Tonight I'd like to speak about something which doesn't translate very well from Pali into English. It's a Pali word which is idi. And it means something like the potency of a thing or the completion, the fulfillment of something. There's a few examples of the context <coughs> of how this is used. The idi of an artist, for example, <coughs> might be <coughs> the talent or the skill to actually create a work of art. That's the fulfillment of the artist. The the idi of a bird is the ability to fly. The idi of a hunter might be the skill in capturing game. And the idi of the game might be the skill to evade the hunter. So it's that sense of each being fulfilling itself or actualizing its power, its potency. There's another class of idis which have to do with the great magical powers of mind that can be developed through concentration. And there's a list of very traditional powers like creating multiple bodies or becoming invisible, diving into the earth, walking on water, flying in the air, touching the sun and the moon. Sometimes one wonders why one would want to have some of these powers. (laughs) (coughs) One of my teachers, first teacher, Munindraji, after he completed his Vipassana studies, he did a very thorough study of the texts and this is common. This is a common um, explanation of what's powerful, of what's possible through the power of mind. And he became very interested to know whether it's just something one reads in the texts, or it actually can be done, you know, in these times. And he was working with a group of students in Burma, one of whom was this woman Deepama, who I've spoken of a group of uh, students who all had this extraordinary samadhi, extraordinary concentration. And he trained them in these very classical powers of mind and told amazing stories of what people would do. Uh, 
Sometimes he'd be sitting in his room, he said, and one of these students would just appear in front of him. And so the first time I did concentration practice, this was years ago in India, I was doing some metta, not as kind of the general development of metta, but for the purpose of developing samadhi. And I used to sit there with all these fantasies in my mind of what I was going to do when I got all these great powers, (laughs) you know, flying through people's windows and (laughs) playing the stock market. Fortunately, for me, it never quite came to that. <laughs> Actually, in the, in the Buddhist teachings, although he recognized these powers, he also saw the danger, the great danger of them, because of the tremendous liability of self-aggrandizement, of actually strengthening the ego, strengthening the sense of I power-tripping in a very grand scale. And he really called these kinds of idis quite inferior. In his teachings, what he gave value to, what could be called the idi of understanding. And he said that the awakening of understanding is the true miracle. So I think that for each of us, it's worth examining our own motivation in practice. Is it to develop the kind of worldly idi, the bringing to perfection or complete completion some worldly talent, some worldly aspiration, some of which may be quite beautiful. Or are we practicing for some kind of power of mind to be able to dazzle our friends? Or are we practicing for the realization of something much greater than all of this. The Buddha spoke of five idis, or five fulfillments of understanding. The first of them is the idi of special knowledge which means the knowledge or the understanding of things which go beyond the conventional realm of concepts. For the most part, we live our lives in the domain of concepts, of man, of woman, of being. We live in the realm of the names of things. The idea of understanding of this special knowledge is to go beneath the realm of concept, to begin to see and understand directly the constituent elements of what actually makes up what we call a being, or we call man, or we call woman. What are the elements, the more ultimate realities which are actually there? When we examine and investigate very carefully, we see that it comes down to the experience of nama rupa, mental phenomena and physical phenomena. Everything we call self, everything we call I, this whole creation of individuality and personality, our whole sense of who we are, when we examine carefully, we see that it is a constellation of changing elements, material elements and mental elements. The physical elements are quite obvious, quite clear. 
They're all the sensations that we feel in the body. And you've probably had, at least at times, quite a clear sense of how it is possible to experience these physical elements free of concept. When you're feeling the breath, and you just feel the hardness, or pressure, or softness, or vibration, or coolness. At that time, there's no I, there's no self, there's no breath. There's just that sensation. Or in walking, when you feel the lightness and heaviness, those times when there's no concept of leg, no concept of foot, no concept of body. So the physical elements are quite obvious and not so difficult to observe in this way. This is the development of this idi of special knowledge. It's also seeing mental phenomena free of concept. And so we see thoughts and feelings and emotions and consciousness itself, the knowing faculty, without identifying with them, seeing a thought for what it is, namely a thought in the moment, not getting lost in the content, in the story. What we are, what we call self, what we call I, is this progression, the succession of moments of knowing and an object. In each moment, that's what is actually true. There's knowing and an object. The object may be physical, it may be mental. And this is not something That's a question of belief or theory. The whole thrust of what we're doing here is to look for ourselves, to look at our experience carefully for ourselves, what is really true. To begin to discriminate between nama rupa, between mental physical elements, is very important because when we don't discriminate between those two, what generally happens is that phenomena gets jumbled up where we don't see clearly, yes, this is the mental event, this is the physical event. It gets confused or jumbled up and in that confusion arises a sense of I a sense of someone there. But when we see clearly in each moment there's knowing and there's an object and it arises and passes, it becomes increasingly clear that there is no one behind the process to whom it is happening. That everything we call self, call I, is just the arising and passing of this mental, physical process. The dread tool of mental noting actually serves to help open the mind to this insight. For example, when we're noting rise and fall or in and out, It does not take too great subtlety of mind to understand that the noting is a mental event and the rising is a physical event. That becomes fairly clear. The noting is nama and the movement is rupa, is material. So we can begin to see very directly in our experience the difference, the distinction between these two. The noting of a sound is one thing, and the actual hearing of it is another. The noting of a step is one thing, and the hearing of it is another. 
And so this becomes the gateway for understanding the distinction between knowing and the object. The noting is very clear. The knowing is much more subtle. But as we see the difference between the noting and the object, the mind then can more easily see the distinction between the knowing and the object. This is extremely important because it is the first important taste of selflessness, of emptiness of self. All there is, is knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. This is the first idi. This is the first perfection or completion of understanding of the Buddha's teaching. It's understanding all the constituent elements of what we call self, what we call I. The second idi, or the second completion or fulfillment, is the completion of the understanding of dukkha. We've talked a lot in these last months about what this means. We can understand dukkha in so many different ways. We can understand it as meaning unsatisfying. Or when it's something is obviously painful or obviously suffering. We can understand dukkha in our increasing refinement of the perception of change. We start out in our practice with some understanding that things are changing. And as we look more and more closely, we see that things are arising and passing actually very, very, very quickly. That no experience, no object provides any source of stability, any place of rest. It's like if you would go visit Niagara Falls or some huge waterfall and just the constant, constant flow of water over the, over the lip of the fall, constant, 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 constant change, change. And there's no rest in it. There's no possibility of rest in it precisely because of the nature of change. As we refine our awareness and begin to observe this for ourselves, that this is what our experience is like. We begin to understand or appreciate what the Buddha meant by dukkha. Now, many of you have experienced at different times, a lot of dizziness in the practice, or nausea in the practice. You may wonder, what kind of practice is this? (laughs) Is this any great insight that I'm nauseous all the time? (laughs) Actually, it is reflective of some deep insight because it really is one way, although it's not the only way, that we experience, or we're making the transition to seeing the constant, very rapid change of things. And it can be dizzying, you know, until we settle into that level of perception. It gives a very immediate kinesthetic sense of the effect of the constant change. Sometimes we experience dukkha just as a quality or a phenomena of impingement, that objects are continually impinging, hitting, and we feel the unsatisfying nature of that, or the lack of rest in that. 
It takes time for us to open to this understanding because we've been conditioned to a very large extent to seek refuge and to seek stability, to seek security in very conventional things in life. You know, in the health of our body, or in a relationship, or in possessions, or in a sense of security. And so that's the strong inclination of mind. It's a slow deconditioning process which weans us from those attachments so that we can begin to settle back and simply see how things are really happening. This opening to the truth of dukkha is a very gradual process. What's somewhat paradoxical about it is that the more we understand the unsatisfying nature of phenomena, the happier we get. And you may have noticed in interviews when you come in, mostly how happy we are when you come in with your tales of woe. <laughs> you know, because it is really opening to something in all its various ways. There's not just one way, and so you should not be hearing this and programming your mind, yes, I have to experience it like this or like this. There are many ways people experience it. But the opening to it really allows for tremendous lightness of mind because we are no longer driven quite so much by the force of desire and craving not caught so much by clinging and attachment because we know that it is not actually going to satisfy us. And so the clearer we understand, the clearer we see dukkha for ourselves, the mind lets go. And in that letting go comes a tremendous lightness and a tremendous ease and a wonderful sense of freedom. So the first iti is that of the special knowledge of understanding the constituent elements of what we call self. Seeing that there's no one behind the process. That what we are is this process of changing elements. The second iti is the fulfillment of the understanding of dukkha. The third iti or the third completion, fulfillment, is the completion of the abandoning of what causes suffering. Abandoning the kilesis, abandoning the defilements. Remembering that what we call defilements are not something that makes us bad people. Rather, they're just those qualities in the mind which make us suffer, which actually create burning in the mind. They also are impersonal. They're not self. They don't belong to one. But when they arise, they have the power to burn. And so this third iti is the bringing to completion or fulfillment, the abandoning of these, of these factors. And we've talked of the different levels of gilesa or defilement those that cause what is called outrageous behavior. That behavior which obviously causes pain and suffering to oneself, to others. 
That's a very strong kilesa in the mind that can cause us to act in that way. The other level is when it's simply arising in the mind but not causing the action. And in the very subtle level, which come into being when the conditions are right. In our practice, although we're aiming to weaken and abandon all of them, the main attack on kilesa is centered on one in particular, because it is the roughest and most dangerous of them all. And so we take out our sword of wisdom and work with the gilesa or defilement of belief in self. It's often called personality belief, but it really means this sense, this belief, this idea that there is a self, an I, a me. And this is the common way people understand themselves. This is the prevalent, by far, the prevalent view in the world. Strong sense of I. And it's so dangerous because it is the source of so many kinds of actions which are not in harmony with a true sense of well-being, well-being for oneself or others. Based on the strong belief in self comes greed, comes fear, comes anger, comes envy, comes jealousy. So, so much is rooted in this one wrong understanding. If this view is not understood, what happens is that we actually begin to develop the idea of selfhood. And we, we strive to perfect some manifestation of self, of ego. So this abandoning of the causes of suffering is directed very precisely and directly at uprooting this idea of self. And we do it very carefully in the course of intensive meditation practice. Sometimes people get so involved in just sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking and dealing with everything that comes up that often the larger picture is lost in terms of what is actually being purified in the mind. Because in every moment of mindfulness, in every moment of careful noting, when the mindfulness is accurate and strong, in that moment there is no I, there is no self. And just think for a moment of the difference between when you are lost in a thought and when you are noting thinking. Can you feel, just in memory, can you feel the difference in the mind state? In one, there's a tightening and a solidification, an identified involvement with what is happening. And in the other, there's this amazing spaciousness which thought arises and passes and there's no problem. No problem because of no self. We extrapolate that from noting thoughts, noting sensations, noting emotions. In each moment of mindfulness, that gilesa of self is being weakened.
as you go through the day, every single moment of awareness in which you are not identifying with any of the constituent elements of experience, powerful deconditioning of this view of self. I'd like to read just part of a poem by an anonymous samurai of the 14th century. I just got this in the mail today. (laughs) Direct from the samurai. (laughs) Uh, what's, What's amazing, what amazed me when I read this is just the timelessness of the Dhamma. I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armor. I make benevolence my armor. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. This is the idi. This is the third idi. When we bring to completion the abandonment of those forces in the mind which cause suffering. When we abandon this self-creation, this creation of self in each moment. The fourth idea is the realization of the end of suffering, the cessation of suffering. putting down the burden, putting down the burden of dukkha. There are many images which give a glimpse or a taste of what it means to put down a burden. During the early years of my practice in India, I would spend the hot season in the mountains, in the hill stations. The hill station in India means 7,000, 8,000 feet. So it's actually mountains anyplace else. And see these hill people climbing the mountains with these huge loads on their back. Huge timbers. And they'd be, they'd be walking doubled over. You know, it's like their bodies were parallel to the ground. It was amazing to watch. And just at the top of where we were living, it, it uh, flattened out. And there was a tea shop, a chai shop, right at the top. And so very often you would see these people carrying these huge burdens you know, up the side of this mountain. And just at the top, they would just put the burden down for a cup of tea. Just imagine the sense of relief of putting down the burden. Not to make the analogy between a cup of tea and Nibbana, (laughs) but rather with the sense of relief. The sense of relief. The end of suffering. Another image which I've used 
at times, which also captures it to some extent, is when you know, there may be some background noise, the hum of something, that we don't even know we're aware of, and all of a sudden it stops. And we didn't even realize kind of the suffering of it, the burdensomeness of it, till it stops. And then there's that experience of relief, of quiet, of peace, which is so beautiful. The realization of the end of suffering is this putting down of the burden. And we taste it or glimpse it in many different ways. You can have that experience when you watch carefully when there is some kilesa or defilement in the mind, let's say anger or desire or lust or fear. There's a strong suffering in the mind. And if you watch very carefully, just at that moment when that mind state, when that kilesa ends, there's a taste right there of the end of suffering, the possibility of a genuine freedom in the mind. You feel the peace that comes from that. Another way we can experience this idea of the end of suffering comes at a time in practice when the equanimity is very highly developed. It's a stage of high equanimity where the mind very, very peaceful, high energy, everything is happening. And all the phenomena are happening, but there is no reaction in the mind at all. There's no movement of mind at that state. It's said that that is the state of mind in which a fully enlightened being, an arhant, dwells. And so even long before we may become fully enlightened, just in that state of equanimity, we get a taste, we get a glimpse of the end of suffering. We also get a taste or a glimpse of this idea when all conditioned, all conditioned phenomena comes to an end. All formations which are arising and passing, arising, passing, arising, passing, at a certain point stops. So in all of these different ways, we get a taste, we get some sense of what this means, this idi of the cessation of suffering, putting down the burden. And the fifth of these, the last one, is the completion of the path which leads to the end of suffering. It's the fifth idi, the fifth fulfillment. The teachings of the Buddha are so beautiful in their clarity of how to go about all this. You know, we can see the suffering. We can open to it. We can feel it. We can see what causes it. But how actually to put down the burden? How to develop the mind? The teachings are very clear. It's the development of sila, the development of a basic morality of non-harming. Development of effort and mindfulness and concentration. The development of wisdom. One of the great powers of the meditation is that the entire Eightfold Path of training is present in every moment of mindfulness. And so in every moment of careful noting, one is actually practicing, cultivating this fifth iti, this fifth fulfillment, that we are developing the training which leads to the end of suffering. These are the fulfillments 
that the Buddha talked about. The true miracle for us, the true development of understanding. In many of the texts, one of the ways in which somebody who got enlightened would celebrate the event. One of the common refrains, which has always been very inspiring to me, they would often say, done is what had to be done. Wouldn't that be nice? Done is what had to be done. Finished. Come to completion. Come to fulfillment. We have actually done what needs to be done. What needs to be done are the realization or the development of these five it is. Understanding Nama Rupa, the constituent elements, so that we free ourselves from the idea of self. Opening to the truth of suffering, so we see it and understand it. Abandoning the causes of the suffering, is abandoning the defilements, especially that sense of I, of self. Realizing the end, the cessation of suffering, and developing the path to the end. So then a great question for us, is this possible? You know, we can hear it and we might be inspired by it. Is it actually possible to do? And what is the basis? What is the root for such a possibility? The Buddha spoke of four bases for the attainment, for the fulfillment of these it is. And they're quite interesting to contemplate because they point to possibilities for different temperaments and different personalities and different strengths within each one of us. Because we all are not going to be powered by the same force. We all have very different ways of doing things, styles of doing things. And what's interesting is you look at these four roots of attainment, you see it's approaching it from very different angles. There's one thing which they all have in common, and it's something which is often tremendously misunderstood in the practice of the Dhamma. People often think that in Buddhism, in meditation, there's no passion, there's no intensity, and everything gets very flat or gray, or dull, or boring. You'll see in this description of these four roots of attainment, the overriding characteristic of each is tremendous passion. Not, not passion in the sense of greed, or lust, or anger, but passion in the sense of extraordinary interest and commitment, that that is what's needed to actually do what has to be done. The first of these, the first root or basis, is something which is called desire to do. That quality in the mind or the quality of personality which has this excessive 
strong sense of motivation to do something. It's the sense in the mind that nothing will obstruct us from doing what we wish to do. The motivation is so strong. It's the sense of, let me die. I'm going to accomplish this. I mean, see this force in work not only in meditative or spiritual discipline, but in any kind of discipline. Very often, the people who become great in something, in any discipline, whether it's in sport or art or whatever, very often have this sense, this very strong sense that nothing is going to stand in the way of this accomplishment. Desire to do. It's important to both appreciate the intensity of the passion that's possible in that and also to distinguish this desire to do from the factor of greed. It's not a factor of grasping or clinging in the mind. It's a factor of motivation. Motivation that has been tremendously enhanced, tremendously strengthened. This is one way, one strength, one basis for attainment. There's another, which is slightly different. It's not this strong motivation, the quality of that, but it's the quality of tremendously strong effort. And there are certain people for whom this effort factor in the mind, this kind of heroic effort, is very well developed. And it's the sense then of the mind being challenged by what requires effort. And so we see a task that needs to be done and we know that it's going to take tremendous amount of work to do it and maybe for long periods of time. And instead of shrinking from the effort, this particular kind of mind, where this is strong, it's challenged by it. It's interested by it. It it rises to the occasion If something can be done by effort, I will do it. There are some classical statements of this made by the Bodhisattva before he became Buddha because he very much embodied this quality. If the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. There's something tremendously inspiring about that to realize that if there is something that can be done by the exertion of effort, that there is a potential in us to do it. That we have that quality, we have that capacity. And so this is another angle, another perspective. Certain people have this proclivity, have this tendency where effort inspires rather than discourages. Just like the desire to do or the motivation to accomplish can be a cause for the realization of the idis. So can this strength of effort. But maybe you haven't found your path yet. (laughs) Maybe neither one of these is exactly your temperament. There's another way 
There's another strength of mind which can lead one to completion, to fulfillment. And that's the quality of love of the Dhamma. Where the mind where the mind is in love with the Dhamma, with the truth. And so the overriding concern in one's life, the overriding interest is the exploration and discovery of what is true. And it's very analogous to someone being in love and the mind filled with the thoughts of that other person. And nothing else is important, nothing else matters. That same quality of the mind becoming absorbed out of love of the Dhamma becomes a source of tremendous strength because we are no longer so interested or satisfied or fulfilled in more worldly things. Not that we necessarily don't live in the world, but it's where our mind is interested, where our mind is engaged. And this is, this strength of mind, this root or basis of the it is, it's not just a matter of a passing love affair. What this quality is talking about is, is a passion, is an ardency where it becomes the consuming interest in one's life, that's a tremendous strength in bringing to completion, in bringing to fulfillment what needs to be done. So for some, it is a strong motivation. I will accomplish this. For others, it is the challenge of effort. This requires great effort, I can make that effort. For others, it is the great love of the Dhamma. And the fourth root or basis for coming to fulfillment, coming to completion, is a very great wisdom about the most profound aspects of the Dhamma. In some way, you might think of it as a true and genuine and, and very deep expression of the philosophical mind. Just the mind that is interested in exploring the deepest aspects and the biggest aspects. You know, it's the mind that can easily contemplate just the nature of this samsara, the nature of this round of rebirths and the amazing suffering attendant in this round of rebirth and the possibility of freeing the mind from that. It's the mind which can become very large and very expansive and go very deep to the profound issues involved. And there are some minds which are inclined to that. It's maybe somewhat analogous to you know, the very, very great scientists whose minds just contemplate the deepest mysteries of how things work. And that becomes their life. This is the fourth basis or the fourth root. Any one of these whether it's that sense of motivation, desire to do, whether it's a sense of effort, whether it's the sense of love of the Dhamma, whether it's a sense of just interest in penetrating to the depths, the mystery of it, 
any one of these can be used as the basis for attaining those five itties, those five states of completion. If we have none of them, or they are weak, we can develop any one which seems to embody our interest, what inspires us. If we see one of them already growing or strong in us, it's to develop it, it's to strengthen it. They are the basis of realization. All of this presents a very great challenge for us. And it's the challenge of balancing the fact that there is something to do. There is work to be done. There actually is a goal of realization, of fulfillment. And at the same time as we understand that, to realize that all the work is right here in the moment. It's quite interesting how many of us hold the idea of goal. For many people, it is quite disconcerting. Once had a group here at the center. We were just talking about how people understood the sense of a goal or a vision. And it was amazing how prevalent the view was of people thinking of a goal as somehow implying an unworthiness. If there's a goal, somehow I'm... Can we be inspired to really open to the deepest part of ourselves? That's what the teaching is about. And this is the way of doing it. These are the powers of mind, the strengths of mind that enable us to do it. And so you should really take great delight and great joy in all the efforts of your practice. You are making heroic efforts. And it's wonderful. Let's sit for a few minutes.
I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armor. I make benevolence my armor. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. great samurai yogis. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.